Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. New episodes every two weeks. Find Historical Blindness on most podcast players and platforms. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, freaks. Uh, we just got off the plane from our tour. I still smell weird. Yeah, we smell like plane. <laughs> um, really, we got off the plane 15 minutes ago. Yeah. And we rushed over to the studio to put this together for you and to finish up the production of this episode and get it out. And for those of you who subscribe to the premium channel, it's due Within a couple of hours, so right. So we're rushing to get this done. Gigi was like, "We have to get this done. This is really important that we release this on time." And I was like, "Meh." I smell. Like I would plain. like to take a shower, yeah. but uh, he convinced me that we should get this done, and then we can shower. We had an amazing time. Oh my gosh, I cannot with the love and the sweetness and the presence. And the love, I'm just blown away. I've never felt so overwhelmed in my whole life. We had people travel from great distances again. In Boston, we had people that came from as far away as Buffalo, New York. Tampa. Tampa. They drove from Tampa to Boston. In Charlotte, people drove from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Chicago, in Nashville. Jimena, who came from Costa Rica. She has ducks. I love her. Sam and Jess, who came down from uh, Ohio. Dressed as us. For Halloween. It was incredible. It scared the shit out of me. Uh, Yep, me too. Uh, People brought us coins, which, I mean, obviously I'm not interested at all. No, no. That would be geeky. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Sponge candy, books, art, magic. I'm so happy. I can't wait to uh, put up all the new cool art that you guys did in our studio. 
And then along with uh, Sam and Jess dressing up as Cat and Jethro for a Halloween Eve show, on that show as well, on stage at Zany's in Nashville, one of our freaks, Sky, proposed to her boyfriend, William, in front of the freaks. It was beautiful and wonderful, and I loved it. And I may have welled up a little bit, slash cried a lot. All right, are you ready? Who goes first? It would be me. Okay. Yay! I'm ready, please. Okay, this is according to The Guardian. In 2006, digging was going on on a piece of land near the location of the old 19th century London hospital. Ooh, I like this already. It wasn't long before, you guessed it, bone fragments started to uh, to turn up. Oh, shit, girl. Now, at first, they assumed that, that these were animal bones. And in fact, some of them were. There were some cow bones, some dog bones, guinea pig bones. Okay. But it the, seems like a large selection of bones. It's kind of a wide selection of bones. But um, the more they dug, the more human remains started appearing. And, and before long, the uh, human bones far outnumbered any any animal bones. Oh, they were not really sure what was going on there. At first, they thought maybe they'd they'd uh, hit the burial ground for the old hospital. Okay. But uh, the 19th century London hospital did, in fact, have a burial ground, but it was uh, very clearly marked on maps, and this was not where they were digging. It was nearby, but it was not in the burial grounds. Archaeologists uh, were digging unmarked ground. They noticed the bones had all been neatly buried in long since rotted coffins, and they were positioned in the Christian um, east-west configuration. So they had been in coffins. They weren't just yes in a pile. Right. Got it. Well, they actually were in a pile because the coffins had rotted and uh, they got all jumbled up. Got it. It was actually a bizarre uh, jumble of skulls and uh, crowns from skulls, neatly cut through like like you would uh, the top of a hard-boiled egg. They found bones that were wired together. Oh, my. The bones had been clearly dissected rather than cut through in operations. So they brought in archaeologists from the Museum of London Archaeology, and what they had stumbled upon was evidence of a very dark chapter in the history of the London Hospital. For decades, uh, only corpses of executed criminals were the only legal source of bodies to teach surgeons anatomy. Sure. And uh, in the early 19th century, there was, uh, there was a big problem. The number of crimes meriting the death sentence had fallen off shortly, so there weren't as many executions. That's a real shame. <laughs> the gap was filled, of course, by corpses that were dug up by grave robbers. Or in the case of the London Hospital, um, the unfortunate poor who oh. died in the wards. Did and you have to at least give your permission? Nope. Oh. If you were poor and you died and nobody and nobody claimed your body, off to the carving table you went. Not making enough money was giving us permission. Know what I mean? If you'd wanted us not to chop you up, you would have been a doctor. And of course, the most infamous cases of uh, corpse supply came by murder. Meow. 
So altogether, they uncovered uh, about 260, I think about 262 burials. But in the confusion of all the remains being jumbled up in the coffins Mm -hmm. and layers of burials, which had all kind of uh, broken down and slumped into each other, it may have been as many as 500 individuals. But what about the guinea pigs? I'm guessing they were part of the experimentation. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, this is suddenly very upsetting. The excavation um, inspired a new exhibit at the Museum of London. And it's pretty dark and gruesome, and I really so want to go. The terror that grave robbers inspired is visibly reflected in the objects. The exhibition includes some of the bones found at the London location, also remains of grave robbers who themselves ended up being executed and handed over to medical schools. There's a grim cycle. Mm. Uh, Also, fragments of the brain of William Burke. Uh, He was the partner of William Hare, Burke and Hare, the legendary uh, Edinburgh grave robbers who turned to murder in order to, uh, well, you know, they wanted to increase their supply chain. Yeah, they they needed dollars. They needed dollars, and so they were um, smothering people in their sleep in poorhouses and then selling the, the fresh cadavers to medical schools. And still to this day, in parts of the world, if you smother somebody, it's called burking. Oh, really? Yes, you burk them. I did not know that. But the, okay, so like the dogs and the guinea pigs yeah, and stuff. Yeah, dogs and guinea pigs. Yeah, they were they were uh, apparently experimented on as well as the poor human beings and executed criminals. Also at the exhibit, tattooed skin of either Thomas Williams or John Bishop, whose case was very notorious in London. It was the case of the Italian boy. Have you ever heard of this? I don't think so. It's probably a poor young cattle herder whom they captured at Smithfield and um, they killed the kid and sold the body off. And yeah, it provoked so much outrage that it helped bring about the uh, Anatomy Act, which ensured a supply of legal bodies. And the idea was executed criminals and poor people who died in in hospitals. But then, of course, that uh, introduced a whole new horror for poorer people who knew that if they did die in hospitals and their families could not afford to claim and bury them, they knew where they were going. And that must have been just horrible. Now, there are some religions that prohibit you from being able to be autopsied or, you know, Mm -hmm. chopped up in any way. Many, many religions, yeah. Okay. All right. And so that would have been the concern. I think the big concern is just really having no decision over what's being done with your body even after you're dead. Oh, you you think that people want to have body autonomy and and be able to choose what happens to their own bodies? That's my thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Weird, but fine. See what I'm doing here. Yeah, I know what you're doing. We we all get it. Okay. The London Hospital had an unusual problem. They had way too many bodies. (laughs) Oh. And so they were selling them off. Were they not a very good hospital? (laughs) (laughs) The reason was that they were close to a uh, shipyard and there were a lot of relatively young and healthy men that were killed in accidents. Oh. And so those bodies were taken or the victims were taken to this hospital. And so these bodies were quite desirable by anatomists because they were younger and, and in many cases not diseased. Sure. Except for the scurvy. Ah, the scurvy. Ah, where is a... Hold on, it's coming to me. Yeah. 
where is a pirate's favorite place to get tattooed? Where would that be? On his arms. I made that up just now. So anyway, they had more bodies than they needed, and they donated a lot of them to other hospitals, and the rest they buried in the burial ground, with the exception of those that were procured in illegal manners, and, and those, those bodies were just buried out in that unmarked field. But the bodies that were buried immediately outside the hospital in the burial ground, grave robbers would come and rob from the hospital burial ground. What? There was a report that patients were woken up one night by strange sounds. They saw men trying to dig up a body buried immediately below their ward windows. Oh, jeez. And that terrified them. And apparently they frightened off the grave robbers. In 1932, a man by the name of William Millard or Millard, Millard or Millard, he was arrested in the burial ground. He was out there in the middle of the night. Uh, He had not actually dug into the ground Mm -hmm. and tried to uh, dig anyone up. So they suspected that he was, that's what he was there for. So they charged him with vagrancy and they put him in prison and he eventually died in prison. His wife, Anne, was enraged by this. Well, yeah, he hadn't done anything. Well, that's what he claimed. That's what she claimed. But uh, they said, well, maybe he didn't dig anything up, but he was a vagrant, so he's going to prison. But she petitioned Parliament and then went on to publish a pamphlet called An Account of the Circumstances Attending the Imprisonment and Death of the Late Mr. William Millard. She even bought a printing press. Good for her. To make these pamphlets. She continued to insist after his death what he claimed in life, and that was that he was not there to dig up a body. He had actually been transporting bodies with the tacit sanction of the hospital. What? And the hospital was all like, I don't know. I never heard of you. Who knows? The justice system back then certainly had some loopholes. He had not come to dig up a body, but to collect one from the back door. Wow. Now, there were a lot of ways... To deter grave robbing, there was the casket cage. Tabasco sauce. Tabasco sauce is no more. That's more for when you bury your pets. It's not for people. That would take a lot of Tabasco sauce. They used to bury people sealed in shipping crates as makeshift vaults. Uh, The use of hidden locking mechanisms on casket lids was popular. Oh, wow. Cast iron coffins. And some of the more bizarre ideas even received patents, including one very strange invention. Atlas Obscura explains, in the U.S. on the night of January 17, 1881, a would-be body snatcher by the name of The Dipper. That was his, uh, his name. He had a cool nickname, The that's, Dipper. That's not cool, buddy. Sorry. So he's digging in a grave, trying to get a body out. When all of a sudden there was this big explosion and he was killed in a blast. And this was in Mount Vernon, Ohio, in the Mount Vernon, Ohio Cemetery. Quick side note, the tallest tree in Maine is in the town of Mount Vernon. The attempted grave robbery was a, was a three-man operation. This is according to the Stark County Democrat. The explosion broke the leg off, a second, off the second thief. The third, he was the lookout man. He allegedly left unscathed and hoisted his wounded friend onto the back of their wagon. This was, as Atlas Obscura says, another win for the coffin torpedo. (laughs) 
At least 12 body-snatching scandals were reported in 1878 in Ohio. Even Ohio Congressman John Scott Harrison, he, he was the son, the ninth son of U.S. President William Henry Harrison. Harrison's body was stolen from his grave but found days later at the University of Cincinnati, and his remains were ultimately returned to the family tomb. My goodness. Philip K. Clover, a Columbus, Ohio artist, he patented the early coffin torpedo in 1878. <laughs> uh, it functioned like a small shotgun sh- uh, secured inside the coffin lid to, quote, prevent the unauthorized resurrection of dead bodies. If you tried to open up the lid, then basically, you know, you got shot with a bunch <laughs> of ball bearings out of like, it, it was like a shotgun. That's very creative. Very creative. Oh, but Mr. Clover wasn't the only one who patented a a coffin torpedo. Another guy from Ohio. Apparently, Ohio was the hotbed for coffin torpedo production in those days. Oh, okay. Former Circleville probate judge Thomas N. Howell patented what he called a grave torpedo, not a coffin torpedo. Okay, different. Different that way. And this was in December of 1881. Now, the difference between his and Clover's Howell's grave torpedo was different than the coffin uh, torpedo. It was actually a shell that was buried above the coffin and wired to it. Now, this worked like a landmine. Oh, my goodness. People would, uh, they'd be digging into the graves, and then they'd hit the tripwire and blow themselves up. Sure. This was not as effective as the shotgun in the coffin because, No? no, it would also blow up the corpse. Oh, okay. So, yeah. There were advertisements for it. Here's one for the Howell torpedo. It reads, Sleep well, sweet angel. Let no fears of ghouls disturb thy rest. For above the shrouded form lies a torpedo, ready to make minced meat out of anyone who attempts to convey you to the pickling vat. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's delightful. I like that very much. Scientific American was a big fan of uh, the torpedo coffin. They boasted, quote, in consequence of the increasing number of graveyard desecrations, the genius of the inventor has been incited to devise means of their defeat. But not everybody loved the idea. No. The Pittsburgh Dispatch had an article called Brain Rattling Ideas, and these were what they thought were stupid inventions for the time. Okay. This was right about the same time that the torpedoes were invented. Brain-rattling ideas. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hold on. <laughs> Novel products of misguided genius be found on file in Uncle Sam's patent office. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. A toy cow which gives milk. A hobbler for chickens that makes them take a beeline out of the garden when they begin to scratch. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Isn't hobbling when you like break their ankles? It must be some sort of a uh, device that keeps them from scratching. I don't know. Like foot cuffs? Like foot cuffs. Like poultry foot cuffs. A machine to remodel ugly noses. And then the (laughs) torpedoes that blow up grave diggers. Sure. Oh, also a fighting cat made of cast iron. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So why aren't these inventions still used? Well, grave robbing is down considerably. And the reason is anatomy laws gave medical schools access to bodies of the poor in most states in the U.S. by 1913. Mm -hmm. 
and that curbed the black, uh, black market for cadavers. Also, improved refrigeration technology allowed corpses to be stored and preserved in medical institutions, so there was less of a premium on the, on the newly deceased. Right, not so much a turnover. Microbiology advances in the surgical field, early x-rays, all of these things led to the decline in demand for fresh cadavers. Grave robbing still happens, but it's an isolated incident. And more often than not, it's not really grave robbing. It's more, we've talked about this before, biomedical firms that harvest body parts and sell them illegally before they're buried. They're not digging people up, but they're selling off their parts. Sure. Yeah. So it's, would, it's the same thing. I would think more if there was going to be a grave robbing issue these days, it would be for the stuff that was on the body rather than the stuff that's in the body. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There was a case in New York where a funeral home was in cahoots with uh, a medical bio research facility mm -hmm. and they were selling leg bones, among other things, of, of cadavers before they were buried without the consent of the family. And they were replacing the cadaver's leg bones with PVC pipe. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So anyway, that's a lot of stuff to think about. <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. Here are a bunch of uh, interesting GoFundMe accounts. Number five, going bald. I need hella hats. <laughs> Help. Ivory asked for his friends and neighbors to help him raise money for a bottle of Hennessy. <laughs> he had raised $12, by the way. My goodness. Jolene set up an account. Why lie? I need money for tits. Me too, Jolene. Me too. Um, meanwhile, in Fulton, New York, please help me remove my forehead tattoo. <laughs> She'd raised over a grand. And number one, I need a car to bring you this dick. Oh. Yeah, and he's got his shirt off. He looks like one of the guys from Millie Vanilli. Okay. And he's raised, so far, zero dollars. <laughs> the Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. 
As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Box of Oddities. Your mileage may vary. All right. What you got for me? Well, we've talked about uh, this on multiple occasions. Like, what is it uh, that determines whether or not a planet is habitable? Um, And in order to be considered habitable by those who study planets, I guess. The planet study people? Yep. Mm -hmm. A planet needs to have liquid water. Cells, uh, the smallest unit of light, need water. The smallest unit of life need water to carry out their functions and for liquid water to exist, the temperature of the planet needs to be just right. Ah. Now that's, of course, assuming that life needs water and that you're <laughs> yeah. basing things probably on carbon-based life forms, but there's nothing that says that things can't be silicon-based yeah, or, was, you know, whatever. You, that was an argument so. that, that Carl Sagan right. uh, put forth in, in Cosmos. We want to think of life as carbon-based because we are carbon-based, but right. what's stopping nature from making silicon-based? You uh, don't know. We just don't know. Anyway. We don't know, Claire. Assuming that uh, we are talking about carbon-based life forms, of course, uh, in order to be considered habitable, water, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so let's talk about Kepler-186f. That was the first validated Earth-sized planet to orbit a distant star in a habitable zone. How far away is Kepler? We're getting there. Oh. You can't ask questions. I'm curious, though, like a cat. I know, and I appreciate that about you. Um, but this is one of those topics that I don't retain this information. I see. So I'm going to read this to you as I wrote it. <laughs> okay. All right. Here we go. The habitable zone, also known as the Goldilocks zone. Right. You know about it. Not too Uh, hot, not too cold. Exactly. It's a range of distance from a star where liquid water might pool on the planet's surface. Can I just point out that while Kat was reading that to you, she took her bra off. (laughs) I've been wearing it all day. That was quite a maneuver there. (laughs) They're exhausted. So uh, the habitable zone is a range of distance from a star where liquid water might pool on the planet's surface. And the discovery of Kepler-186f confirms that Earth-sized planets exist in habitable zones of other stars and signal a significant step closer to finding worlds that are similar to what Earth is. And Earth-like planets uh, may be common in the universe According to a UCLA study, uh, the team of astrophysicists and geochemists present evidence that the Earth is not unique, even a little. The study was published in the Journal of Science, October 18. So the scientists, led by Alexandria Doyle, a UCLA graduate student of geochemistry and astrochemistry, developed a new method to analyze in detail the geochemistry of planets outside of our solar system, which blows my mind because how now? (laughs) Doyle did this by analyzing the elements in rocks and asteroids 
or rocky planet fragments that orbited six white dwarf stars. The closest white dwarf star Doyle studied is about 200 light years from Earth, and the farthest is 665 light years away. Oh, by the way, I have sinusitis. I'm currently on antibiotics. Thank you for all the well wishes. I hope to not sound like this soon. Also, she's not wearing a bra. Back to space. By observing these white dwarfs, Doyle said, and the elements present in their atmosphere, we are observing the elements that are in the body that orbited the white dwarf. That makes sense. The white dwarf's large gravitational pull... Uh, shreds the asteroid or planet fragments that's orbiting it, and the material falls down to the white dwarf. So, right? I mean, as things, you know, they don't exist forever. Eventually, there's wearing away, there's uh, friction, and it's all like, and it becomes part of the, the planet itself. Observing a white dwarf is like doing an autopsy on the contents of what it has gobbled up in the solar system. That is what uh, Doyle the astrophysicist said, not what I said, because I wouldn't use the term gobbled up. I'm not that cool. She's so <laughs> cool. Anyway, so most of this uh, research is done at the W.M. Keck Observatory in Hawaii. Now, Doyle said if she were to look at a white dwarf star, she would expect to see hydrogen and helium. But in the data that they're getting, they're also seeing other materials. Materials? Materials. Like silicone, magnesium, carbon, and oxygen. Also, I have uh, sinusitis, we, we and know that, I'm yeah. currently on antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And don't make fun of me. I'm not making fun of you. <laughs> okay, maybe a little yeah. bit. Yeah, uh huh, uh huh. But in a very loving way. Really? Mm hmm. So when iron is oxidized, we're just scooting right away yep. from. Okay, uh, it shares its electrons with oxygen, forming a chemical bond between them. Young, uh, one of the astrophysicists, explained uh, that that's what's called oxidation, and you see it when metal turns into rust. Oxygen steals electrons from iron, producing iron oxide rather than iron metal, and they measured the amount of iron that was oxidized in the rocks that hit the white dwarfs. How do they do that? I don't know. Must be some sort of chemical spectrologicness. Yeah, I bet it's got something to do with colors that they see right. on things. Yep. And then Spectrum they, analysis. Lights. Light equals numbers. Mm -hmm. <sighs> they have those tubes that you look through. Mm-hmm. And you can see things far away. So rocks from Earth, Mars, and elsewhere in our solar system are similar in their chemical composition. And they contain a surprisingly high level of oxidized iron. So this scientist said that they measured the amount of iron that got oxidized in the rocks that hit the white dwarf. And the researchers said, basically, okay, so this has an effect on atmosphere. The core as well, and the kinds of rocks that make up the planet's mm -hmm. surface. All the chemistry that can happen on the surface of Earth can ultimately trace back to the oxidation state of the planet. Okay, so by analyzing the the content of the rocks on the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, 200 light years to 665 okay. light years. Okay. So over 200, over 200 light years away, and they can determine that quite possibly there is a hospitable environment for people like us yeah well um or for people for people in, in general theory. yes yeah. 
um, or for for life, let's say. Okay. Well, carbon based. Because we, I mean, we're pretty delicate, you know. Well, speak for yourself. I'm just, I, well, I mean, sure. <laughs> Their point is basically that all the chemistry that happens on the surface of the earth that makes it hospitable environment um, is it can be traced back to the oxidation state of the planet. And the fact that we have oceans and all the ingredients necessary for life can be traced back to that as well. Until now, scientists haven't known in any detail whether the chemistry of rocky exoplanets is similar or very different from Earth. How similar are the rocks then that the UCLA team analyzed? And the answer is very similar. There are Earth-like and Mars-like planets in terms of their oxidized iron. Doyle, super awesome UCLA astrophysicist chick. Who uses the term gobbled up. Said that they are finding rocks everywhere that are very similar to what we have on our Earth. Which, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. And, uh, you know, if the oxidation state of the planet is what determines whether or not it has the things needed for life and all of these other planets have that same kind of oxidation rate and they stated that this is not what you would expect to find the astrophysicist and geochemist young from the same study said a question was whether this would also be true of other stars. And the study is saying, yes, this bodes really well for Earth-like planets in our universe. In November of 2013, astronomers reported, based on the Kepler space mission data, that there could be as many as 40 billion Earth-sized planets orbiting in the habitable zones of sun-like stars and red dwarves in the Milky Way. Just in our galaxy. Yeah, 11 billion of which might be orbiting very sun-like stars. So there's no ruling out that life can take other forms than what we're familiar with. Correct. But there are 40 billion possibilities of life springing up similar to ours on other planets just in our galaxy. And yet we are so self-centered as a human race that we think that we're the only ones. Who thinks we're the only ones? You don't. The scientific community in general. I well, don't. Well, think that that's I, well true. let me put it this way: people don't take the idea of UFOs seriously. That's because you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I rest my case. No, I mean, there are a lot of barriers to entry for life, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um, it does have to be a very delicate, amazing mixture of things that, that happen, and it, you know, uh, but as the great wise one Jeff Goldblum said, mm -hmm. uh, life uh, finds a way. Ooh, yeah, the gesture down and everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've seen it a few times. That's a very good Jeff Goldblum. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyway... Space is neat. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I wanted to read what the what Boston Magazine wrote about us. Oh, okay. Can I do that? I suppose. Is it very self-serving? Yes. Uh, it really is. And I apologize. But, but it, you're going to do it anyway? Yeah, it cool. Just, it was really nice of them. They wrote, uh, the most popular podcasts tend to come from uh, ma three main flavors, comedy, true crime, and public radio shows. 
The box of oddities mixes the vibe of all three, with the hosts, married couple Kat and Jethro, ringing humor from bizarre, macabre, and perplexing places. Recent episodes have touched on such deeply random topics as the grisly execution of Scottish hero William Wallace, the question of animal cognition, the nature of fear, and perhaps the most urgent question of all, why do men have nipples? Oh, wow. That was very nice of them. Thanks, Boston Magazine. Oh, I love it. Thank you. And thank you for hanging out with us. We look forward to seeing you again next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities. And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.